Gus. Thanks for joining me. Hey, okay, mate. Appreciate the time. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this because you're involved in a lot of different things. I knew you wear multiple hats. Um, and so I'm excited to hear about some of the things that you've done in the past and also some of the things you're doing today. But what I'd love to do with people is really um, get a little bit below the surface, find out about their journeys. And to do that, we jump in a time machine and go back to say when you were four or five years old, like take us right back in time. What was life like for you? Um, where were you living? And yeah, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, so my, my whanau is from Ngāti Parau, East Coast Gisborne. Um, and I grew up on a farm actually until I was about four years old, four or five years old. So my first uh, memories was actually on a farm in Dougville, way up north, um, and then moved to Fiji right when I was four or five years old. So um, from farm to, to the beach, that was kind of the, the start point. So pretty rural upbringing, had, you know, horses, cows, sheep, and all that stuff. And then shifting over to um, Fiji kind of changed the game a little bit as well, just because, you know, it gives you perspective on on life a lot quicker, you know? Like I remember pretty clearly we were, um, the levels of wealth in my class were, you know, if you had a concrete house or if you had a tin house, and we had a concrete house, so we were considered rich, or if we had leather sandals, not plastic sandals or no sandals, you know, so um, I, I got perspective pretty early on, um, but basically at, you know, four or five years old, I was already, you know, charging around and up to all sorts of mischief. So I wrote my first car off actually when I was four years old as well. Took my, my papa's car, started up, sent it off a cliff. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. so I've been uh, causing, causing mischief for more, more, than a, more than a few decades now. That's awesome. And the thing that I love about learning about you is it, it seems like you have a real heart for people and helping others. And I'm just wondering to what extent does that even trace back to those earliest times in Fiji? You know, like it, because it, it's a very different culture, it's a different way of being. Um, do you think there was influence mm. on you from that young age at that point? Yeah, for sure. I mean, my my dad was working for a um like a habitat for humanity type business. And so we were helping build um, you know, affordable housing and getting clean water to sort of rural vi villages and stuff. So some of my first memories were, you know, literally out in these um these little communities and, and tribes that had no um no power. And, you know, we were helping, you know, do the housing stuff for them and getting mm -hmm. getting fresh water in there. And, you know, those um first early memories always were very much a, a pretty key point. And my mum's always had a pretty um big uh you know interest in that so she, even still today she still works with like you know women's refuge and salvation army and she's um been a, a teacher and help out with nurse aiding and, and all sorts so very much like kind of from the caring side um and then just yeah kind of growing up through all that you know you get perspective at a at an early age and you kind of see things a bit differently and i think probably just being like grateful you know as well because i mean regardless what I do now, people kind of know where I've come from. It's not like, um, you know, I've just popped up with a silver spoon in my mouth, you know, like I remember, you know, we talked about, I used to live in a rented out a friend's um, bathroom for a winter with no heating, paid 40 bucks a week, chucked all my, my gear in, in the bathtub, put a little foam mattress down the ground, closed the door next to the toilet in the sink. And that was me, you know? So, you know, growing up in Aranui, going through the journey that I've sort of been through, anything good or crazy that happens now everyone knows exactly where i've come from and i think that's pretty that's pretty cool because it's definitely like authentic to me and i i don't think it's possible to be able to um i think it'd be disrespectful to my past to not to be able to you know 
like happily claim that and be proud of that whole journey because you know it, it for me anyway it's the older i get the the more crazy of a journey i, I think it's um I, I really think it's been mm. that's a that's a good insight sometimes when i ask people questions one of the classic questions would be what would you change about your past you know what would you tell your younger self but actually it's going through those experiences isn't it that actually gives you the wisdom to become who you become and i think if i told myself what i know now when i was 18 i probably wouldn't have listened to myself firstly um but also i had to go through those things to be able to shape me into who i am today um just coming back to that early childhood i'm i'm really curious how how long were you there in fiji for like was it several years you know it, it, these are conscious memories aren't they it, it's an actual no thing. totally yeah yeah, so I, I totally remember growing up on farm Dougal. Then um, we were in Fiji until I was um, eight eight years old, so four yeah. four five years, and then we moved back to Christchurch and moved down to Aranui. That's where I grew, um, sort of was basically grew up till I finished high school. Um, so my 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 business Aranui Ventures is named from where I'm from. You know everything that it represents definitely from from there. So um, it, you know it's it, it's tricky because you get quite transient. You know your 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 whanau's from. The east coast and then you're on a farm up north and then you're on a beach in fiji and then you're in i don't know christchurch and then you go into snowboard world and then you travel around you know like i so when people say you know where is home i've got so many homes you know and, and like genuine homes you know like my 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 soul sits in um uh Waipiro bay east coast gisborne you know my um, my early mem memories and my, you know, my, my grand, I was named after my grandparents, Ron and Betty. And so that's my first childhood up in the farm, you know, Fiji became that foundation. I don't know, became my core, then, you know, crush. And then, um, when I got into snowboard world, Wanaka was basically the beating heart of everything living and breathing out of there, you know, then I moved to Auckland for the business stuff. And I wouldn't say Auckland I, out of all of the places, I would definitely would say Auckland's not home, home as such, you know, that I was, I, I've lived there, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it home. And then in the States, you know, now I've been um, back and forth the last 20 years. So Tahoe's also home. And then my wife's family's from San Fran. So that's also home. Um, so, you know, my, um, if I was to die tomorrow, my ashes would get spread and pray a few different places. I'd, I'd imagine. But yeah. I, I th actually think that when you, when you have the perspective of lots of different lives and worlds, it gives you a way a sort of broader, approach to how you you know look at things in life you know because you've got to see so many different lenses or so many different angles of of, of stuff and so that's probably one of the, the best thing and also being able to travel the world and meet a million people and all sorts of stuff has been probably pretty rad but um yeah it's very transient but at the same time very um yeah sporadically localized mm. it's fascinating the concept of home isn't it as well because you know, home is where the heart is. Like there's these proverbs that come out. Um, for me, I'm similar. I have an accent, but I'm actually speaking to you from Ototahi Christchurch because I grew up here as well. Um, and this, yeah. this is where I feel most at home. And it's a strange thing, but I feel like in Christchurch, if somebody says, let's meet here, I can get there without telling you the street names. I, I just get there. Um, whereas in other cities, I'd be like, oh, well, how do I, what's the best way? Whereas here, I feel so comfortable. I get it. Yeah, you just go, we got to go to Cal Stadium, play some basketball. I know how to get there, you know? And and um, yep. for me, that's a really significant thing because I, like you, I've traveled a bit. I've lived in six different countries. And in those other places, it's um, it's been about the people in those places for me. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm.
So growing up in Christchurch in Aranui, can you just describe what that was like? Yeah, what was that environment? And um, yeah, so you're eight years old. Yeah, was so it a difficult eight, transition nine, back? Um, was it hard to come back to a, a, a country that was supposedly your home, but you'd actually grown up in Fiji until then? Well, it was definitely colder, I'll say that. Um, <laughs> I think probably just the, the interesting one with Aranui for me was more um, maybe tension's probably not the word, but I, I've always sort of lived this dichotomy of this kind of this um, this balance, right? So, you know, I talked about when I was, um, you know, growing up on a farm and up far north, I was kind of like token Maori kid and a bunch of white boys kind of go to Fiji. And even though I'm Maori, I'm considered probably white compared to Fijian and Indians. And then I come back to Aranui Christchurch and then in Christchurch, you're kind of surrounded by a whole bunch of white boys again. So then you're kind of there. And then I go into snowboard world and it's predominantly rich Pakeha and I'm poor Maori kid. And then I come into business world and it's, you know, corporates and suits and boardrooms and all sorts of crazy shit. And then here I am and with my like $7 t-shirt on and, and kick. So I kind of have always sort of had this funky balance with, um, with my, my place and things. I don't know whether it's, maybe that's part of my combat, my combative nature as well. Cause it's basically, mm. you know, it's it makes it harder when there's more in front of you you know and i think for me anyway my journey is i I like winning the battle that's harder because then it's not only a better story to tell but no one can question that journey when they know how tough it's been so you know i don't know for me um was definitely tough i mean it wasn't wasn't easy um you know it's if you don't know Christchurch, you know it's a low socioeconomic area of town it's far east um my dad when i was you know 11 years old he had a, a double brain hemorrhage and he went back to the brain capacity of a six-year-old so you know home was not not easy not good not safe at times um we're on the yeah. benefit um you know went through all that and then you know when we were, i was 15 then my dad passed away um when we were i was on new year's eve we were on a family trip up north and we got in a car crash and it was horrible you know so then I just think of myself in the time, you know, 15 years old, dad's just passed away. We're on the benefit. I'm failing high school. You know, my careers advisor then tells me that I can, you know, work in a warehouse packing boxes. That's what they said I could do with my life. And I'm like, well, I've got nothing wrong with that's what you did to bake bread. I just had a full issue where that was the kind of the limit of what they were saying I could do with my life. And I was just right. like, stuff you, you know, stuff you. And so I just turned that into fuel. You know, I turned that entire um, moment that gave me fuel for the next 10, 15 years to get me out of there. And that's exactly what I did. So, you know, um, I eventually got a, um, offered a scholarship actually after my dad passed away to go to Christ College. And I thought it was for sport, but it was actually for kids whose um, dads had actually died. And they didn't tell me that. They lied to me about it. And I chose to stay at Anui. I chose to stay with my boys. <laughs> I chose to stay <laughs> with my crew. And I was like, stuff that. Like, I, I ain't leaving, you know. And they, they're my boys and still my boys to today. Um, and that was basically it. So, you know, love that page. That's part of the reason or the main reason I, I named my company Aranui Ventures, named after where I was from. And yeah. so I wanted um, it to be as a statement of like, you can do it. You can 
get out there and do different. You can push, you can strive, you can do whatever. And so that's been, that's been my, um, my journey. And you know, it's definitely come at, at a toll of being insanely competitive and competitive towards stuff if I'm passionate about it, mm. but net, net, I don't really regret any of it because it's got me here. And so stuff it, you know? Yeah. So I'm interested in two things there. I'm going to pick up on it. The, the first one is just that conversation where you were told this is all you'll ever be able to do. For some people, they would have reacted in a different way and just accepted it, I guess, and gone, oh, well, that's all that I can do. What is it in your nature, do you think, that, that caused you to react in the opposite way, which is, well, I'm going to prove you wrong? Because um, it sounds like in each of the circumstances you've described, you've been in the minority. You know, you've been the one always, who's always, always in the minority. So you've kind of grown up with that, you know, having to prove yourself in a way. Um, but yep. do you think that was that the source of that or yeah, just talk us through that. Well, it's for, forever the under, yeah, it's forever the underdog, right? Like I, yeah. I knew that they weren't going to give me it. So, and I was just going to take it like stuff them. Like yeah. you're not, and because I'd been super competitive at sport, like you need to understand as well. Like my, my, my drive for going hard is probably different to most, you know, like I was walking when I was nine months old, just full walking. <laughs> like I'm was just sending it and going at 110% when I was, you know, 11 years old, I was playing for the New Zealand under 14 basketball team. So I was three years ahead of my age at 11. And I was like the smallest in the group played basketball, played soccer for New Zealand, gone to the national reps for soccer, skated, got third at nationals, you know, like all anything I'd go into, I'd just go insanely hard and go and dominate. And so when basically someone said, this is all you can do in my head, I'm like, well, now you've just given me fuel and thanks for that. And, you know, I'll see you in the future. And I just kind of said, stuff you and just went and did my thing. And so, you know, like I, I, so I went hard and I, you know, I became a professional snowboarder and I traveled the world and ranked number one in New Zealand and I won a silver medal at the world final. So, you know, like I, I went to the pinnacle of, of that as well. But for me, it was always like, um, if I would have listened to them, what would I have done? I would have just sat, stayed and plateaued. And I was just kind of like, stuff that, like, why can't we do more? Why can't you push more? And so the, like, I, I, I want a battle, you know, like I want, I want them to, you know, think less of me. I want them because I need that. I need that sort of fuel. And, you know, I went and saw, um, I don't know if it's a psychologist or psychiatrist or one of those a couple of years back, I was trying to decode my head a little bit to figure out like what makes me tick. And he just sort of simply said, mate, you know, you're basically just going from a prove yourself to others mentality to transition to now being able to provide value to the platform which you now have because what you don't want to be is the angry washed up old dude that's just hating on everything mm -hmm. the way things were and blah 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 it's like you don't want to, you don't want to be that dude so you know that transition phase has probably just been happening over the last couple of years as well as i've kind of got out of um got out of that and i've had a few wins and you know moved on to the next yeah. Well, that's the thing that interests me is now that you, you, you know, because your story is amazing. And I did watch a, a video um, when you had your book that came out. And one of the things you were saying to high school students was what what's feeding your fire? Don't put water on your fire, pour, you know, pour petrol, pour gas on the fire and and give yourself that boost. And it sounds like in a way that's what those words of that guidance counselor was. It was it was fuel to really help you get to the next level. 100%. Yeah, 100%. And just being aware of that too. And the, the concept of that was, you know, everyone that's around you at these younger years, they're either going to put water or gasoline on your fire. What is it? You know, and then you just need to ask them, you know, are you 
are you, you know, fueling my future or are you trying to dampen it? It's pretty simple. And unfortunately what happens is when you, when you see that the majority of people are putting water on your fire, they got to go, you know? Mm. But the interesting thing to me is the attitude is really important of the individual. And I think this comes through in what you're saying, you know, that person, that guidance counselor, they were pouring water on your dreams and ambitions really, but you were able to somehow convert it into petrol to really get it going. Um, which is because I think that's important for the listeners to realize is that there's going to be negative things that come, but how do you react to them? You know, what happens next? Yeah. Can I come back to one other point? Um, Cause I'm, I'm just curious with your life, like you, you've been successful, you, you're doing amazing things now, but one of the things that strikes me is with your father passing when you were 15, um, that must've given you a sense of mortality or, you know, the, the sense that the reality is we're here for a short time. You know, we were born, we're alive, and we die. Can you just talk us through, did that, you know, that's a young age for that to happen. Do you think that has had an influence on your approach in things or, or are there other factors? Well, for ages, I'd always wondered, why do I go so hard? And one of the things that I was thinking about is, is the reason that I keep continuing to push, push, push is because I don't have um, my dad to be there to say, I'm proud of you, you know? Like, you know, your mother, you can be, a, you know, an absolute, you know, homeless wreck, but you, you, your mom's always still going to love you. But, you know, having, you know, your dad say you're proud. If I got that, do you think I maybe would I have stopped? Maybe would I have been like, cool, I've made it. I don't need to push anymore. Cool, I don't need to try. You know, and then I, I, I thought about it for a bit and then I realized that, you know, I was walking at nine months old. I've been overachieving my entire life. Absolutely everything I've done, I've totally pushed and crushed and keep going, going, going. So it wasn't. But um, what it probably did do for me anyway, it just, um, I got, uh, I'd been playing team sports until he passed away. And then after he passed, I kind of just gave up on the team sports because I wanted to do something for myself that I could control and that I could do. And snowboarding gave me that. It was like expression. It was escapism. It was creativity. It was freedom. It was, um, acceleration. It was, it was everything. Um, so for me personally, it was kind of like, that was, became my my escape and my freedom and I just stayed with it like I didn't I just kind of if I want to go do something like who's to stop me like who's to say I can't go and try and do whatever you know and so I think if anything it just made me more committed to the um to the escape of what I wanted like my whole thing was I wanted to be able to get to the states and snowboard I wanted to be able to get on a plane get to America snowboard that was like the only thing that mattered um and then I made it happen, traveled the world, and the rest is history. Yeah. The interesting thing to me, though, is because I think you you won, you know, the silver and you were professional snowboarder, but then you walked away from that as well. What was your thinking behind that? It was super easy, man. I was, um, my game plan was get in, blow up, get out, build up as much leverage as I could, build up as much relationships as I can put up everything and then transition into business. That was always, that was always the play. And so before I probably totally peaked in my skill set of ability, I made the decision to retire and it was going to be, so I made the decision to retire before I got the silver medal. I told two people, I told my bro, Mitchie and Nate, and I said, after this, I'm quitting, I'm stopping competing and I'm starting this business and it's going to be an online, you know, snow media company, blah, blah, blah. And they thought I was absolutely nuts. So basically, I go, I win, I get, you know, I get silver. I come back to New Zealand and everyone thinks like, oh, Rebecca's, you know, going for blah, 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 blah. 
And I'm like, cool, I'm out. Peace. And he's like, what? <laughs> what? They, they, could, they couldn't believe it. But I knew in my head, I knew exactly what I was doing. And at the start, so many people gave me grief. Like, um, you know, I, was, I wouldn't necessarily say I was a laughing stock, but a lot of people were just like, oh, look at Rebecca trying to be the businessman, trying to be all business, 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 blah, blah. And in my head, I was like, just wait five years, you know? the second one injury you'll be out second next thing happens sponsor drops you you'll be out and then you know it just like clockwork <laughs> all those had it hated had sort of you know navigated off to the side and done whatever and you know i never wish ill will on any of them but um it was awesome to see that my strategy had paid off by becoming a platform and being able to you know get paid from everyone all at once instead of just one person and being reliant on your your body and your skill set and it was getting to a point where, you know, it wasn't fun to almost die every day, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like jumping off a cliff and, and it was getting super good. And don't get me wrong. Like I was, I was good, but I wasn't like, I don't think I was like the greatest ever. Like, oh, don't get me wrong. Like I could shred and it was fun and it was awesome. And I was, I was good, but I, it wasn't like, you know, this is going to buy me Lamborghinis. So my whole thing was how do I transition out safely? And the way I sort of saw it was, well, my writing was at its peak. I want to start a business and then I want to slow crossover. And so I can, and then all of a sudden I don't need to be reliant on my body. And, and that's, that's, that's how it played out. And it was probably one of the coolest things that I'd, um, that I managed to do. And most of these times when you're so ahead of the game with what you're thinking, you're crazy until you're not like everyone thinks you're nuts until you win. And then you're like, Oh man, you actually planned that. And it's like, yeah, like for years. <laughs> and so, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to probably have that happen a couple of times now, which has been pretty awesome. Yeah. The interesting thing I pick up on that though, is it's, it's the foresight, isn't it? It's thinking in the, it's the chess game. It's thinking a couple of long game chess, mate. We're hundred percent. I love chess. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, for me, it's a similar picture. Like I, the chess idea is you've got to th be thinking in advance, you know, like several moves ahead. But the other thing that I've often thought of is collecting keys and the keys will open doors that are locked. So how do you get the key? So in my example, like I work as a lawyer, to me, getting a degree was like getting a key that opened a door that would otherwise be shut. And it's kind of that mentality, isn't it? You know, putting in the work to then get a key to open something, you know, but you have to have that vision to be able to go, right, this is where I'm headed. Yeah, it's chess, not checkers. I used to play chess a whole bunch when I was younger. I was in the chess club. I absolutely love chess. And I think of all this as life chess, you know, like all these moves, you know, what are you, what are you playing for? And what's, what's that next thing? And it also helps as well when you look at, the ecosystem with others and you look at business opportunities you know when you start thinking of it like chess you can sort of start to predict pretty much to the point with what you think is going to happen and then you know navigating to those to those points um gives you a lot more upside for the win mm. so if we take that chess picture one of the things that I'm, i see that you're you're doing and and you talk about is the fact that helping people is a big part of your ethos and, and what you do now um, you know, taking your background, taking your experiences, and now trying to do good and help others. How does that, I guess, what's the motivation behind that? Where does that come from? Um, what does it mean to you to help other people as well? How does that actually translate into practice? Yeah, so it's not like a, um, it's not a conscious thing that I 
choose to do. I've just always, I've always done it. I, I just kind of think in my head, like, you know, if you've got excess and you've got options, it's your duty to give that to others. Like I think about me when I was a young buck and I think of them as breadcrumbs of like little drops of positivity, which you can leave around everywhere with, you know, introductions that you do or, or catch-ups or high-fives or meetups or events or learnings or whatever it may be. Like all those things are breadcrumbs that can kind of pivot someone's trajectory by one degree for good. You know, mm. like it can be, you know, and you'll never know how much that degree is going to work in its favor. But, you know, if you pivot someone, you know, one degree today for good in 10 years time, they're going to be in a totally different trajectory. And you, you're kind of, I guess I'm sort of playing, you know, like generational chess with those relationships and those upsides. Cause I don't know. And a lot of time I've put time into stuff and I get burnt or I feel like it used or whatever. But if, as long as there's one person gets one thing out of it, that gets them on one degree for better. I'm kind of happy with that, you know, and, and, and I'm starting to see the, the, the fruits of it now where, you know, I've done so much stuff for people that I forget I've done and they'll come up to me like, Oh, Hey, you did so-and-so. And I'll be like, Oh yeah. Cause for me, it's just like, it comes in, I react, I deal with it and I just move on to the next and I just forget about it. And so maybe one of the cool things that will hopefully happen in time is, you know, more of these will come up. I'll be like, Oh yeah, that's right. I did this thing that helped the person, but you know, it's never, um, I don't really keep tabs on any of it. If anything, I probably forget more than I've probably done. But, <laughs> you know, I like these I like these stories when, um, you know, not when like legends or whatever pass away. And then there were these crazy stories come out with, oh man, there was this time here, so-and-so did this. Like, it'd be just cool to have a whole bunch of random ones that you even forget that other people don't that made a positive impact on others. And I think that that could be pretty cool. So, you know, maybe I'm just playing a bit of a generational game for, for cooler stories of, of others. And, you know, I think, well, I would hope anyway, with the amount of relationships that I have out there with, with a huge array of people, you know, no one knows who's in my circle. I don't, I don't tell anyone who's who I talk to and I don't tell anyone publicly who I'm with. I don't, I keep kind of, you know, for as public as I am, um, the things that truly matter and the people that truly matter are never, are never seen. And I think, I think they respect that. And I also respect that because I don't want them to feel like I'm like leveraging them for their profile or their power or their influence like i don't even want i don't even want to be questioned on on that um that's why i like everything just kind of by by design off the flipping grid <laughs> so then i can just go do my thing and then everything else is like you know the ones that that, that matter can can stay um stay in, in silence and that's kind of i guess how i've sort of navigated but it, it means a lot for me um because those back channels that you have and those relationships with those and influence and power, they, they can genuinely help people and they've been able to help people multiple times. And I, I think the more I've realized is, you know, the more power and influence, whatever it is that you get, the more you, good you can do for others. As shitty as it sounds, it's flipping 100% true. Cause when you know those keys to get into those doors to make those things happen, that's, that's all that matters. And I think the other side at that point too, is they know you're not pissing around. They know what your intent is. They know what you're there to do and they know what, you know, that you, you mean well and you're trying to do good and usually not for yourself. And I think when you tie all those things up, you kind of become a little bit of an unstoppable force because you're not doing it for you. Do you know what I mean? And so yeah. that's where I think hopefully things will probably navigate to in the, in the future. 
Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I love that answer. And it, you know, it comes back to that relationships and, and also that, that doors may have opened or you've opened doors that you can then crack open for the other people following behind you. And that, you know, you're an example then to others coming along. Um, I, I think it's an amazing thing. If like, for example, if you can introduce two people and they then go off and do something cool, and then you find out about it later through a third channel, you know, and it's like, oh, wait a minute, how did you guys meet? Well, it was at that lunch you organized or it was that intro you did. Like, that's pretty special, isn't it? Because then you're being the catalyst to empower more good to be done. Does it, does, you've mentioned your Maori heritage. I'm learning more and more about Te Ao Maori. And to me, it's this incredible source of wisdom and strength. Um, if we talk about words like kaitiakitanga, stewardship or guardianship, you know, that it's not all about you. In the Western conception, it's very often about, well, look at my car, look at my house, look at my bank account. Whereas in Te Ao Maori, it's a much more holistic view of the world. And actually, you aren't even you in some ways. You represent all the people who've come before you, and you're there to guard and shepherd the people who are coming and helping them. Has that, has that been an influence in some of your thinking as well? So at a start point for years, no, because I was living it and I didn't, um, I was just doing my thing. I didn't realize I was different. I didn't realize, I mean, I knew I was different, but I didn't think of it like, um, like culture, culture as an asset or liability. I knew people like a lot of people gave me shit for being Maori when I was younger and jokes and this and that. But yeah. as I got more into the, the business world, I started seeing more of that from the race, the race side. Um, and not always for good, um, if I was being honest. And then what I've sort of seen in this last little bit is watching the narrative and the, the energy shift around um, those in commerce when it comes to culture. And it's becoming pretty clear that um, what was seen as a liability for many is now essentially one of the biggest assets we have. If you look at the world of you know tech and businesses, everything gets flattened and AI and processing, blah, blah, blah like what remains, right? It's creativity, it's brand, it's storytelling, it's care, it's people, it's relationships. So those, those going more to the soft side of things and definitely leaning more into the cultural side. So, you know, one of the biggest things, I, like I'm very like, proudly Māori, you know, like I've always I've always answered the phone since I was 15 years old saying, kia ora, Rebet speaking since day one. You know, people gave me shit for starting it and now it's kind of cool, you know, but I've just done my, done my thing. Um, I do feel like like Maoridom right now I feel is it's at a pretty risky spot where there's plenty that are wanting to exploit the culture for commerce or exploit the culture for um to tick boxes or exploit the culture to you know to to just try and position them in a different light in public and all sorts so it's it's quite a dangerous place where it feels Maoridom is right now and and obviously I'm you know, I'm on this this big text chain, which a bunch of other sort of Maori heavy hitters on the space in the tech space. And basically I don't say anything. Why? Because I'm the young buck on the chat and I'm not, it's not my place to say it, you know? So there's always this level of respect for that culture too. So, which I do think is good. Um, but there are some pretty big issues, which I, I hope um, get more embraced by many and, and culture tries to keep control of its own culture and not get it let, um, let it get exploited by by others for the wrong thing so i i get i'm a little bit more protective of it now i guess um but always been super proud like always rock my greenstone or say i'm maori or like it's pretty 
pretty pretty easy and, and i think it is a bit of a superpower i think it's awesome and yeah. the more people that realize that the better yeah yeah it's interesting because you are so involved in commerce and business uh, what i'm seeing as a trend is that people are more having the realization that there is a paradigm shift occurring right now where in the past people thought about business they immediately thought about profit how much can i make for the shareholder and going forward it's much more about profit to be sustainable, to fulfill a purpose. There has to be the combination of profit and purpose. And, and when you come and look at EWI-based companies or enterprises, they often will have intergenerational plans, um, which is something that is a much more holistic way of looking at a company or a business, rather than just, well, what's the quarterly profit report and how can I sell this thing for the most money to exit? Um, it, it's a different way of thinking, I think. Well, it's chess, not checkers, right? Like Maori dim and culture are playing chess long game. Mm. A bunch of these other transactions and commerce is short game checkers, mm. you know, and it's pretty simple to see who the, the long game winner is going to be. Um, so, yeah, I, I think um, the, you know, at the end of the day for most of the businesses driven on profit is, is around shareholders, right? And so I think when the voice of the shareholders become you know, tweaks enough where people actually buy into what they're they're wanting to say, then then I think business will change. But until then, that there's a fundamental shift in what the outputs of what success could be like, whether it's quarterly earnings or whatever, nothing will change until that does. So, yeah. you know, you always follow the money and you can usually figure out what's going on pretty quick. Mm. But I think people like you have a role to play as well to talk about this more and, um, you know, that, that purpose is a key part as well. When you, when you come to invest or you're looking at a business, how you can support them, um, what are the type of things that you're looking for? Or um, yeah, how do you go about supporting an entrepreneur coming up? I, I usually try and shortcut to the quickest way for them to make a ninja move. I call them ninja moves, right? Like um, usually they'll be so stuck in the little bubble. They haven't zoomed out to actually think of, you know, who's the, smartnership like who's the smart partnership which they could do whereas you know have they actually looked into what currently exists in the market have they thought about talking to because as soon as you do a ninja move you can think about who you actually need to talk to and that's just a person and as long as you've got the relationship with the person you can get to them so i always just think about ninja moves like the fastest way possible as soon as possible to get them 10x 100x whatever because when you've got the game cracked, I'm still only 30, I'm only 36 now, but I know that, you know, if I was 56 and I've been in the game for, you know, another 20 years, regardless what business or vertical comes in front of my way, I can pretty much know who'd be able to talk to and plug them into like, oh, yo. And then you obviously you've got to go through, you can have the connection, which is easy, but then you got to go through due diligence to make sure it's the right sort of play is the right fit is there, you know, all the rest of it, that stuff comes later. But yeah, I go straight to the kill of like, what is the fastest way to get the quickest win right now? Cool. And and what and what is, you know, what is something that no one else has really thought of? Let's do that, you know? Because I think when you just copy paste others, you don't really make progress. When you're genuinely, you know, creative and authentic and brave enough to who you are to do something a bit differently, that's when you get a bunch more disproportional upside. Yeah, that's good. And you mentioned relationship there as being really key, you know, knowing who to call on, knowing who to intro introduce to. I can't even ask how many people you would have met in your lifetime, but I'm guessing it's 
tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, you know, can you describe your sense of when you first meet someone, can you tell, is it, is, is those first five seconds, can you tell, how much can you tell from that versus sort of the, the longer term getting to know people? I'm just curious about that as someone who's met a lot of people. Yeah, so I'm kind of insanely lucky where I can pretty much remember like every person I've ever met, I can pretty much remember their face. I won't remember the name as such, but I remember the face and the energy. And like perfect example, I was at the gym the other day and um, I sat down as a dude next to me and I literally remembered him from like a year and a half ago we met and he was, you know, he's into like Greenstone stuff, whatever. And I was like, oh yeah, hey, yeah, I forget your name, but yeah, we met, you're talking about the Greenstone, blah, blah, blah. And he just like couldn't believe that I'd remembered him. But in my head, I was like, no, no, because I remembered like the moment and I can, so IQ wise, I'm not that smart, I'd say. Um, you know, failed high school, couldn't get into university, but EQ smart, I feel I'm pretty flipping epic. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I can roll into a room and I can pretty much like read and decode. And because I've got this, I love the chess thing too. Mm. I can then go into their mind a little bit to be like, okay, my perfect example is last Wednesday, some stuff's going on with this other business. And I was on the phone call about it as a bit of a, like a code read emergency for a friend of mine. And it, I was just looking at it and I said, you know what? if I'm then in this moment for what their world is, this is how I'd see it. And this is what I think I do next. And then honestly, 48 hours later, they announced the launch of this next little thing and we flip and called it. And everyone was like, how did you pick that? And I was like, dude, you can kind of see it. So the way I kind of think about it is I'll just put my energy into theirs. I'll see the world out as if I was them. But then I put the layer on of like how they roll, what's their moral and ethical compass, what the energy is like, where's their, where's their skill set. And that's how I kind of put it that way. But yeah, basically I can roll up um, probably like eight to nine times out of 10, I can basically get a read on someone like real quick. It's been yeah. a lot harder through COVID and stuff because everything's been on, um, you know, obviously on like screens and you can't feel the person in the energy. And mm. one of my biggest weaknesses and strengths was that, you know, my biggest strength is usually if I'm physically in the room and my energy can come with me, but to be able to try and make these calls from, you know, through screens of, I've, I've definitely probably stuffed up a lot more remotely. Um, yeah. That's probably been, been okay. I probably haven't had the as good of a read. So I mean, I'm getting better slowly, but um, yeah, I'd say, you know, 80 to 90%, I can pretty much read, you know, you can read the energy of someone wants something real quick. You can read the energy if someone's not fully been honest, you can read the energy, the way they talk about others. You can, you know, like all that stuff's super easy, you know, yeah. watch, watch how they talk about others, watch how they talk about themselves, watch how they, you know, how they interact with others, you know, a, a big ones, you know, I, I look for the small things, you know, like, do you, you know, do you look the waiter in the eye and say, say what's up and ask them, do you open the door for the lady as you're coming out? Do you like just, these small stupid things, but I think it can tell a lot about, about someone. And I think probably the good thing from my side now is there is so much of me out there where it would be impossible for me to fake, fake it. <laughs> like it's just too much. You can't, you can't fake the amount of stuff that I've sort of put out. So in some ways I kind of feel like more like open for all of it because um, I feel already pretty exposed and transparent anyway. Like I yeah. obviously stuff up and a whole bunch, whatever, but for the, for the most part, yeah, 80 to 90%, I can pretty much read within the first minute. Yeah. 
after I ask the first question, I can pretty much already pick, pick it. I can usually pick where they sit in the ecosystem, what they're potentially after, what their vibe is, who they may know. And then the good news is, because when you get to a point, you pretty much know everyone, anyone in the back channels anyway, you can just do a stealth cred check. And this is something that I've, I've realized is you send a text to someone with their name and you're just like, GC, yes or no, cred check, stealth. And then if they reply back and said, we should talk, that means that it's a no-go. Or if it's like legend, they're a legend. Right. And so what many people don't realize is before someone interacts with you, if they're going to do something, they've probably asked around and you better hope like hell that you haven't pissed off too many people because um, <laughs> they will come back to buy you and i've seen i've seen it happen many 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 times so that's yeah. what i would like. like i like the idea of if you're going to mess with me you've probably already you already know what i look like talk like sound like you either like me or you don't you know i can execute the only thing you're trying to figure out is if you can trust me and then you ask around and you have a chat and the majority of the time if someone's coming for a first banter and it's going to be potential business they've already done the rest of the due diligence they're just trying to figure out if they can trust me or not yeah it makes perfect sense. And, and I love what you're saying as well, because to me, in a way, thinking back to what, how we started the conversation, you know, your childhood growing up in a multi-ethnic, very different environment in Fiji, but then you've also lived in Japan. And I know I lived in Japan for five years, and I think I learned a lot from the Japanese way of doing things which is very, it's a very subtle way of doing things, but they will have meetings with people and they'll get a sense. And because they're often consensus-based, consensus-driven. So I worked at a trading house called Mitsui in Tokyo for two years. And I was, I think there was eight or nine of us who were foreigners and there was 5,000 Japanese people in the building. So it was an amazing environment, but I learned so much from that. And I think it's helped me to realize that that empathy or that asking some questions and drawing people out to understand their perspectives before you say something is actually can be really a useful tool. And it sounds like because you've had so many experiences with different cultures and different ways of being, you're able to project yourself into the skin of the other person, which then gives you a bit of a superpower to really know, well, this is probably what they're angling for. Yeah, and it can become pretty lethal pretty quick. I mean, but the, the best thing I love is if I, when I can stand into a room and when the other side genuinely knows you need nothing from them and you need nothing from them, you can actually have an actual, honest, authentic conversation and the relationship gets a lot deeper, a lot quicker because there is no game being played. You think about the majority of other games, there's always leverage or money or someone's got something that you want. There's always a, there's always a game being played. And I think when you can like genuinely like exist and communicate and interact with people and they know that you don't need anything from them and you don't care and you're just genuinely saying what you think how you think it and why you think it the level of respect gets so much quicker so much faster because you may disagree on points but at least you you respect the others for being up front saying how they feel and and what they believe and why and i think that's such a powerful thing like i love the fact that now regardless who i'm in the room with i can there is no other agenda. It's like, I'm just going to say and do my thing. You're going to do your thing. It is what it is. If it pops, sweet. If not, next. You know, and it's, it's not, it's, it, it gets so much simpler <laughs> when there's no power in the way, you know, like, or yeah. there's no leverage from the other side. Like life gets so easy. You know, yeah. it's not like they're a client you're trying to win over and you're doing the fake lunch, rah, rah, you know, it's like stuff that, you know, like I just, 
life's too short to piss around with that stuff for me. I just, I can't do it. <laughs> so. Yeah. 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 No, that's really good. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about chess and the long game and playing the long game. Um, I, one of the things, one of the pictures that I find really helpful when I'm thinking about my own life and how I'm using my time and what it is that I invest in is this concept of planting seeds of trees, knowing that you won't sit in the shade because you're playing that intergenerational, you know, 30 years, a hundred years from now, what are the things that I'm doing? Can you just describe, because often in the first half of life, we're very concerned about what our CV says, you know, what qualifications we've got, what job we've got, that type of thing. The second half of life is often about what will people say when I'm no longer here? Um, can you just reflect maybe, and we're drawing to an end of the interview, just thinking about, um, you know, what is it when you get to the end of your life, what is it that you want people to reflect back and, and remember about who you were? So one of my biggest drivers now that I had, I've said it multiple times, is it's um, a fear of future regret. So one of my biggest drivers is to be old and be like, oh man, I should have, could have, would have, man, I wish I would have dot, 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 or try. And that's why I just try and give everything a go. I don't, I don't care. I'm like, stuff it. Let's give it a crack. Like if it doesn't pop, sweet. But you know, if it doesn't, I'll be the first one out in the public lines that are like, yep, that didn't work. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm ruthlessly fearless around trying because I'd rather deal with the public scorn of many for failing than like the private, you know, like innerness of that, that like just builds up like resentment against myself for not being brave enough to try. Yeah. You know, so that's it. Cause at the end, you know, and as far as the long game is, you know, people don't realize, but now we've converted into this world of digital and social and stuff. Like I always think about like my children's children will be looking at my Facebook stream mm. from when I was their age, what I was thinking, what I was saying, where I was going, what I was doing, like my digital footprint of who I am as a, as a being will be so imprinted. And so thing that, you know, nuggets of gold may last for centuries you know, there'll be, there'll be, it might be snippets that people will be, you know, this could be watched in like hundreds of years time, literally on another planet and being like, man, how crazy was my great, great, great granddad? The dude was nuts. Or like the dude was, you know, whatever it may be like, that's possible. Like if, if now I could see, you know, my grand granddad and grandma, like Ron and Betty, absolute legends who I was named after, man, if I could look at a, like a visual time stream of them at like, 15 17 20 traveling the world like what they thought what they thought about you know politics and space and uh, you know religion and people and community and society and currency like you know we've been able to basically that so i think of it like i've basically i'm documenting my existence for generations that i'll never meet so if you're watching what's up yeah <laughs> that's awesome I know, that. so it's a different it's a it's a different game i'm just I don't know, man, I'm just playing a different game. Yeah, no, it's a different perspective for sure. And I think that that's the thing. That's what I've taken from the interview is having having that long term perspective and embracing it and not shying away from it, because too often, particularly in the West, it is a very short term limited thing. If anything, we're making a year plan. It's very rare to make a decade plan or a life plan. Um, and that's really what we're talking about. Um, I've, I love family history. So I've researched my grandparents and then I've gone back the next generation and stuff. And 
Um, my great great grandfather wrote a book in like 1865 about his trip to Europe. And so I've got this little, you know, time capsule of this person existed. I'm directly related, never ever met him, obviously, but it is a little bit like that with what we're producing today. And with the podcast seeds that I'm doing, um, this will be about episode 265 or so. And I'm archiving it up with the New Zealand library. So it's like a digital record as well. And I figure at some point, someday, you're right, 100 years from now, maybe, somebody's going to listen to this and go, wow, that's what they were talking about back in 2021. That's, that's interesting. So yeah, it's that long game thinking, isn't it? 100%. Yeah. Well, Robert, it's been great to talk with you. I really appreciate your time. Um, we've connected across time zones and, and continents to be able to do this. But I really appreciate your sharing with us about your childhood, you know, the, the Habitat for Humanity days in Fiji. You know, I think that type of influence affects people in ways that um, come out later in life. And then, you know, talking through your childhood, your um, teenage years, the influence of that guidance counselor who fueled your fire, the influence of your father's um, passing, and then through to the idea of a chess game and planning for the future. Um, so I'm really um, grateful to you for your time. I'm watching and, and I'll be watching and seeing what else you get involved in um, and also how you can continue to empower people coming up behind um, and, and seeing an example. Is there any ways that you'd like to let people know about how to reach out in, or, or follow you? And I know you did a book a couple of years ago. You know, how can they access more about what you're up to? Yeah, the simplest way is just um, rubet.com, just R-O-B-E-T-T.com. Um, it's got a bunch of my stuff there. You know, I've got some free, you know, business education courses to help with, you know, social media and LinkedIn and and digital blueprints and um, LinkedIn. I do a bunch of content and my kind of thing is, you know, if I can create value to help, you know, scale value to others and that's, that's kind of that's kind of my thing and you know, the business stuff always figures itself out, but fingers and lots of pies and, you know, it's been working out pretty good so far so um it's been pretty good so i definitely appreciate the time yeah no worries thank you